turn again to the book of Hebrews in chapter 4. Hebrews 4. So we come to the end this morning of a long section that we've been in now for some time. And when we return to Hebrews after the first of the year, we'll be in a new unit of thought. You know, most people enjoy the sense of excitement that comes from starting something new. Maybe the first day of a new semester at a new school. Maybe entering the gym for your morning workout or purchasing supplies for that new home renovation project that you're so excited to accomplish. There's a a sense of anticipation, of optimism that comes with starting something new. At the same time, I think all of us would say we also enjoy the sense of satisfaction that comes from finishing a project. The last day of school, walking out of the gym after the workout is done, or completing the finishing touches on that home project that you've worked so hard to complete. In fact, if we had an open mic here for debate over which feels better, starting a project or finishing a project, we would probably hear compelling arguments on both sides. But what if we throw into the mix uh, another part of the process to consider? What about the middle? The middle of a project. You know, I think we can all agree that the middle of a significant project is the least exciting. Because it's in the middle that we often wonder why we began the project at all, and we wonder if we'll have what it takes to finish. If we had to rank the starting line and the finish line and the middle in in an order of excitement, I'm pretty sure most, if not all of us, would put the middle at the end. And yet, while that's true, it's also true that if we don't learn how to persevere through the middle, then we'll never have the satisfaction of the finish line. We'll never get to know what that feels like. And the author of Hebrews this morning knows that when it comes to the Christian life, we live our lives in the middle. And for some of us, the the beginning, the starting line of faith in the gospel is now many decades past. And the middle is starting to feel long. The journey is starting to be difficult. Perhaps it's not long in the sense of years since you've come to know Christ, but perhaps the middle has begun to feel long because of some pressing trial or or difficulty in your life. The thought of entering into the rest of God, the salvation of God, eternity with God, gets sweeter and sweeter the longer we live here in the middle. But the truth is, sometimes, if we're not careful... Our longing for eternity can subtly begin to be driven not by an increased desire for God, but by an increased desire to be finished with this part in the middle. A dissatisfaction with where God has us here in the middle. And so it's with that in mind that the author of Hebrews now closes out this second warning in the book of Hebrews with a call to to press on to enter God's eternal rest with diligence, to strive for God's rest with diligence. You remember the theme of our book is the superiority of Christ, and we've been in this section now from verse 7 of chapter 3 all the way now to chapter 4 and verse 13. We've been looking at one central theme in this warning passage, and that is to be on guard against hard-hearted unbelief, towards Christ, that is the warning, beware of hard-hearted unbelief. And you remember, for much of the time, we've been looking at Psalm 95. The author of Hebrews has used Psalm 95 as his text. He's been expositing and applying that to our own lives. And we've seen four tactics for guarding against a hardened heart that you see there on the screen. The final of those tactics was to cling to faith. And really, that's been the heart of the application that we've had now for several weeks Because from the wilderness generation, the generation in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses, we've looked at this illustration and we learned a valuable lesson. And that is that unbelief produces disobedience. Unbelief produces disobedience. The wilderness generation lacked genuine faith in the promise of God. And that lack of faith evidenced itself over time in hard-hearted rebellion and outward disobedience. The author is warning us then not to fall into their footsteps, not to go the way of the wilderness generation. That brings us then to chapter 4, where we've been the last few weeks, and we'll finish up today. Let's read 
Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 13. Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, They shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest For the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now verse 11 picks up our text for this morning. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. So that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now just quickly, it reminds you of the overview of what we studied in chapter 4. Because this text this morning flows directly out of where we were the last couple of weeks. You remember this sober warning in verse 1, fear falling short of God's rest. And he explained that in this way, explanation 1, unbelievers are excluded from God's rest. And in verses 3 to 5, believers gain entrance into God's rest. Therefore, belief is the key ingredient. Then we looked at a joyful pronouncement last week. The joyful pronouncement is this, God His promised rest remains open. God's promised rest remains open. And we saw this argument, two arguments to prove that fact that led to one conclusion. The first argument is that David announced a new day of rest in verse 7. Back in Psalm 95, hundreds of years after the wilderness generation, David says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So David announces this new day of entrance today. And then argument number two, Joshua's entrance was not a final fulfillment. In verse 8, the wilderness generation ultimately died off and the next generation came in, but that did not fulfill the, the promise ultimately because David still announces a new day in Psalm 95, which leads to the final conclusion in verses 9 and 10, God secures Sabbath rest for his people. The rest of God, God's salvation, And the effects that has on us now in the present tense and God's saving uh, grace for us in eternity stands open. And it stands open today. That was the point of last week. But it seems that the author of Hebrews is truly concerned about the condition of some of the people in this local church. Because time and time again, it will do this again in chapter 6 and in other places. The author is concerned that some people are on the verge of falling away. There must have been something in their lifestyle that didn't match their confession. We don't know what that was, but in context, he seems to genuinely believe that some may in fact not be in the faith at all, and that lack of faith is revealing itself through disobedience. And so today's text comes to us with a sense of sobriety and urgency. Sobriety and urgency. The sobriety and urgency that the author had for the original readers flows over into our time together this morning. And the author finishes this section with a call to action. And here is the call to action. 
Diligently pursue entrance into God's rest. Diligently pursue entrance into God's rest. This is verse 11 of chapter 4. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. That word therefore, of course, brings in the context of everything that we've just said. Really, this has reached a crescendo point. Uh, The author has done all that he can. He's done his level best to prove to us that God's salvation stands open today. And so all that's left to do now is to call each one of us to respond to that fact. To respond to the truth that today the entrance into God's rest stands open. And so he says, diligently pursue entrance into God's rest. Therefore, because it stands open... Literally, let us be diligent to enter that rest, the text says. Now, that word diligent can also be translated as zealous or eager. So this is a a call to enter into God's rest zealously with with eagerness. This argument now has come full circle. If the salvation is graciously offered to us today, The only logical conclusion then is to do all that we can to enter into that salvation. Now this is not a call to salvation by works. And we know that because the author's already told us how we enter. In verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. He's not calling us to earn our way to heaven. He's calling us to, to diligently believe the gospel. To believe the truths that have been shared with us. The dividing line of those who enter into God's eternal rest and those who do not is the same today as it was then and will always be. Genuine faith is the dividing line of those who enter and those who do not. And yet at the same time, today, just as he has many times before, the author holds two truths in tension with one another. On the one hand, he says, we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. That is absolutely true, undeniably true. And yet also, the Bible unashamedly says that those who have been saved by grace alone through faith alone will evidence that salvation by a changed life. That the Holy Spirit regenerates that person, makes them new so that they have a new nature. And they begin then to walk in obedience, not in perfection, but in growing obedience to God. The author is going to hold those two things in tension here, and we see that in the very next phrase. Verse 11 again, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that, or for this reason, in order that, no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The reason that we have to be diligent is because the author really is concerned that some may fall. The word fall there is to take our minds back to the wilderness generation. They fell, they died in the wilderness. He said, I'm concerned that some of you aren't going to enter into God's rest is what he's saying. And so let us be diligent to press forward with genuine faith so that we don't follow in that example and fall short of entering. But again, he brings up this issue of disobedience so that we don't fall through following the same example of disobedience. It's almost as if the author is viewing this church as sort of a a spiritual example, as if in their Christian life they're walking through the wilderness. This time in the middle between faith and eternity is, is like walking through the wilderness, spiritually speaking. And he says, all of you have professed faith, verbally, just like that generation, and all of you are traveling through this life headed towards that finish line of God's rest, but I fear, he says, that some of you aren't going to make it in the end, that a time of testing is coming in which your faith will be proven to be false, and so it is that he gives us this admonition, continue on in true faith with diligence, strive to enter that rest. There's an application here for both unbelievers and for believers. For the unbeliever, the application should be fairly obvious. He's calling you to repent and believe the gospel. 
If you're not in Christ this morning, what this text is saying to you is that you should be diligent to enter into God's eternal rest of salvation. And the way you do that is by humbling yourself before a holy God, recognizing that you're a sinner that needs his forgiveness but deserves his wrath, and that you would repent, that is, turn from your sin in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing that Jesus and Jesus alone is your only hope of being forgiven of your sins and saved from the wrath of God. And then you will have assurance of entering into that eternal rest of God. That's the clear application here for the unbeliever when you read these words in verse 11. But for the believer, if you've already turned to Christ in faith, this call to enter into God's rest with diligence is is not meant to shake your faith. It's not meant to rattle your assurance. Instead, he's addressing the way that you and I should live the Christian life in the middle. What should it look like when we're in this intermediate time in which we know we're saved by faith and we have confidence one day in the future we're going to enter into glory, but we're not there yet? How should we live? With diligence. With diligence. Diligently strive to enter into that rest. This is... Uh, the same mantra of the Apostle Paul. Remember how Paul lived his life. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 verses 12 to 14. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I live with diligence. I strive to enter God's rest, not earning my salvation, but motivated by my salvation. I live in diligence in pursuit of Christ and obedience. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 24 to 27. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This is what it means to run with zeal, to run with diligence, to strive to enter into that rest. You know, there are some in evangelicalism who get very uncomfortable anytime you press the commands of Scripture and call believers to obedience. As soon as you begin to talk about persevering in the faith or killing sin, pursuing sanctification, some immediately push back. They're uncomfortable with that because they claim that you're adding works to the gospel in some way. But again, the Bible could not be more clear that a Christian who has genuinely been saved is then called to follow after Christ as a disciple of Christ, as Lord of their life, to grow in continual obedience and holiness until he brings us home. And that's exactly what the writer means to say here when he says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. He's already pressed home the call for genuine faith, and now he's calling for that faith to evidence itself in a diligent, eager running after Christ in obedience. Apparently there were some in this church who were struggling with that. They needed this call. The question is, do you need this call yourself this morning? Have you grown weary in your Christian life because of the difficulties of life in a fallen world? Have you become distracted by temptation and the deceitfulness of sin? Has your time and personal study of the Word of God and private prayer begun to wane? Have you grown lazy in the battle with sin in your mind? You know, if this is the case, heed the words of the writer here. Get up on your spiritual feet and run again. Run with diligence. Run as to win the prize. This is the call of the author here. But maybe all this talk of genuine faith bearing fruit of obedience has begun to make you concerned. You know, it's very common 
particularly in the place in the country in which we live, to, to just grow up thinking you're a Christian. Uh, a lot of people think they're Christians because they're from the United States. And after all, it's a Christian nation, so yeah, I'm a Christian. But perhaps this call to diligence, to enter in by faith, uh, to live a life of obedience has caused you to wonder. And maybe you're looking at the, the dividing line of when you say you came to know Christ and you realize, you know what, I'm exactly the same now as I was before. There's never really been a change in my life in regard to sin. And heed the call to strive with diligence, to turn in humble faith and repentance, and be changed, be renewed, regenerated by the gospel, and do it today, as the author says. All of this application is still with the force of what we studied last week. Turn to Christ today. Now, this is followed with two motivations, as if we needed more, but he's going to give us more. Two more motivations as to why believers should run diligently towards God's rest and why unbelievers ought to turn immediately today in repentance and faith. And why we can't afford, this is important, we can't afford to make the mistake of just going through the outward motions of faith while all the while secretly hiding unbelief in our hearts. We can't make that mistake. And he wants to warn us off of that mistake with two motivations. Here's the first motivation in verse 12. Let's read the text again. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 12 gives us motivation number one, and that is this, God's word is alive. God's word is alive. The first thing that ought to, to, to move you, motivate you to obedience is to recognize that God's word is alive. Now, before we explain what the text is saying, we have to answer the question, what's the connection point between this call to enter into God's rest with diligence and this explanation of the word of God? How do those two things come together? And the connection point is this. The Bible's clear that when we, disobey, when we disobey God's word, we disobey God. To disobey the word of God is to disobey God himself. The, the scriptures and God are tied together. The wilderness generation heard the word of God and rebelled, and therefore they were held accountable. Now we are called to hear the word of God and obey. We have the revelation of God, as it said in Hebrews 1, as it's come to us through the Son. God has made himself known through his own son. We've seen the author's high view of the word throughout this text as he's based everything he said off of Psalm 95 and a few other references. And now that we've received God's word, we are called to obey it. And to rebel against the word of God is to do so to our own peril. Because the word of God is not a dead, cold book of just paper and ink. The word of God is something far more precious. And that fact is going to come ringing home through five descriptions of the word of God. And with each description of the word of God, the, the motivation is piled on one layer after another to run with diligence. Here's the first description of the word of God. For the word of God is living. Description number one, the word is alive. It's alive. Again, the Bible is not just a dead, cold book. The word of God, he says, is living. And it's living because the God who spoke these words is living. They are his words, and therefore they are alive and relevant just as he is alive and relevant. You know, the closest human example that we have in our our world of, of living words would be something like a living will. A, a will, of course, is a legally binding document in which a person expresses their wishes and what will be carried out after they pass away. Those words are living in the sense that there's, there's legal force for those to be carried out. But understand that the word of God is living in a much deeper sense. because it, It's living because it 
comes from God and therefore it reflects the nature of God. God is eternal by nature. Therefore, his words are eternal. When they go out, they go out from him and therefore they represent him and they bear the marks of his divine character. So as surely as he is alive, the word is alive. And this is how the, the, the speech of God is characterized throughout the scriptures. Listen to Acts 7 verse 38. This is Stephen speaking. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Living oracles. Or 1 Peter 1.23, For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. The word of God is alive. Understand that one of the deadliest mistakes that you can make, theologically speaking, is to try and separate the word of God from God himself. Liberal theologians have been using this technique now for decades, and they'll attempt to make a, a smooth, intellectually sounding argument along these lines. They'll say something like this, well, we don't worship the Bible, we worship the God of the Bible. Now the reason that statement can be tricky is because when we say we don't worship the Bible, we have pictures of, of us going into our closet with our physical Bible and bowing down to the, the pages and the ink. And of course, no, we don't do that. We don't worship the Bible as an idol in that sense. But what they do is they, they say something like that to divide a wedge in your confidence between the Word and God. And they use that wedge to introduce unbiblical ideas about the nature of God and who God is. And when you try to argue from the Scriptures, they'll say, no, 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 we don't worship the Bible. You're just a, 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 a Bible idolater. We, we worship the God of the Bible. But what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that that can't be done. Because the word of God is inseparable from God himself. It is living. It finds its life from his life. And God is immutable. That is, he cannot change. And that means that his word cannot change either. Because it's based upon him and his character. So what he speaks, he speaks to every generation. It is always relevant. And it never changes. Therefore, throughout history, God has treated people who, di who disobey his written words as if they have disobeyed him to his face. He takes it as a personal offense. It is an affront to God to disobey the written word of God because it is to disobey him himself. The point then is that we cannot justify diso disobedience to the clear teachings of Scripture because of some heretical notion of, of maintain, maintaining fidelity to God while rejecting his word. His word lives. Think of it this way. His, his words are like a, a voice echoing in a cavern. And it echoes constantly backwards and forwards, never stopping, speaking in the present tense over and over again. Once a word from God is spoken, it is eternally spoken, and it is relevant forever. Now that first attribute of God's word, that first description, leads us to a second that's an obvious conclusion from the first. Description number two of the word is this. The word is effective. It's effective. Literally, the text says here, for the word of God is living and active. But the word active carries the significance of power or effectiveness. The idea is that when God speaks, his words are always accomplished. And we see this vividly in the creation account. Think of Genesis 1, verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1.9, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Genesis 1.11, then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them, and it was so. And of course, we have that beautiful description in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11 of the word of God, where God himself describes his word this way. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Because God's word is alive and it comes from him who is by nature omnipotent, when he speaks, his words unfailingly accomplish everything he set out to accomplish. Now, how does that connect to the context of what we're studying? It connects in this sense. If God has said that today salvation stands open to you and that we're called to seek to enter that salvation with diligence, then those words are living and they're active and they're relevant to you and me. If God says salvation stands open to you today, then it stands open to you today. And you would do well to heed those words and respond. There's a third description. A third description of the word. The word is also sharp. Not only is it alive and effective, but the word is sharp. Looking back at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, if you've ever used knives or swords, then you understand the effectiveness of a knife is directly tied to how sharp it is. If, you're, if you like to cook or if you've ever done any butchering, things like that, then you know that a sharp knife is essential for both safety and effectiveness. And so it is that the word here is described as sharp, but not just sharp. Look back at specifically what it says. It is sharper. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That is, the word of God is sharper than any possible tool that the human mind could conceive of. And it's double-edged. That is, no matter which direction you come at it, the word of God is unfailingly sharp, and it will cut on both sides, always and in all directions. It's effective for every means for which God employs it. That becomes relevant because it sets up the fourth description of the word of God. Description number four is this. The word is convicting. The word is convicting. Verse 12, for the word of God's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Specifically, he says that this sharp sword of God, the word of God, is piercing. He takes that tool spiritually that's sharper than any other tool and he uses it to pierce like a surgeon, surgically piercing in exactly the places he desires to affect. And this tool is so sharp and effective that it pierces deep, deeper than you can imagine. His point is it pierces to the inner man, even to the inner depths of your soul, to the inner recesses of who you are. And to get that point across, he gives a spiritual illustration and a physical illustration. Because he says it pierces, first of all, as far as the division of the soul and spirit. That's the, the spiritual illustration. Now, a lot of people get sidetracked here because they want to argue the issue of dichotomy versus trichotomy. That is, is man a two-part being or a three-part being? Because he mentions both soul and spirit here. I would argue for dichotomy, but I'm not going to get into that because that's not at all what he has in mind. That's not the point of the text. He's not talking about dichotomy versus trichotomy. What he's saying is he's using the spirit and the soul as synonyms for that part of you that is your inner being. And he's saying that, that the, the word of God is so sharp that God pierces to the inner part of your being, into your soul, into your spirit, the deepest parts of you, the parts of you that you hide from everyone else on the outside. In fact, that the word of God is so effective that it pierces into places and it reveals things that you yourself didn't even know were there previously. But God brings them to the surface through the ministry of the word. That's how effective this tool is. The soul or the spirit here is the part of us that contains our will, our thoughts, our reasoning, and our emotions. He says he pierces down into the depths of the soul. He uses the same uh, or makes the same point with a different physical illustration when he says joints and marrow. 
When you think of your joints and bone marrow, those are parts of your physical body that are, that are deep within. They're surrounded by bone or other connective tissue. They're hard to reach to. It's one thing to have a knife that can easily poke into a muscle, but to have a sharp instrument that with ease goes right to the marrow. Now, that's an instrument. That's a tool. And that's the idea here. He cuts right down into, spiritually, the deepest parts of the inner man. And if you've ever read or studied or heard the Word of God preached, then you know that this is true. You know that the Word of God pierces into you in a spiritual sense in a way that nothing else in this world can do. Just a simple explanation of the most basic text of Scripture can pierce into your inner man to the point that sitting right there in your chair, you're immediately hot with conviction. You begin to sweat as if someone physically is turning a knife because you can feel it. Because the conviction is real and it's raw. And it's the Spirit of God using the Word of God to pierce into the inner man. That's the gift of the Word that he's given us here. And guess what? There are really only two responses to the piercing work of the Word. And the Bible gives us both. The first response is humble repentance. That's the response the author is wanting here. That's just what he's trying to motivate us to, his humble repentance. And we see this, for example, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches the gospel after the coming of the Spirit there. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it says this, Now when they heard this, that is the crowd, they were pierced to the heart. They were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? If you're a believer, you've been there. You know what that is when the, the word of God pierces your heart and the only thing left to do is to humble yourself and say, what do I do? How do I turn to you, Lord, and turn from this sin? But sadly, there's another reaction to the piercing work of the word and it's angry rebellion. Angry rebellion. We see an example of this when Stephen is preaching the truth to a group of religious leaders that are about to stone him. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. It, it, Stephen's words cut to the core. They knew it was true, but instead of responding in humble repentance, they get angry, even to the point of murdering Stephen by stoning him to death. The author's point in context here in Hebrews is that it's pointless for you to pretend like the message of the gospel doesn't pierce, because it does. The word of God is effective, and it pierces into the inner man, and it highlights your sin, and it brings conviction, and the goodness and the grace of God is revealed. Will you respond in humble repentance to the word of God, or will you stubbornly harden your heart and respond in angry rebellion? The call of the author here from all the way back in verse 1 is don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart when you fear the, feel the piercing work of the word. And if you do harden your heart, there's one more motivation here. And it's description number five. The word is also judge. The word is judge. Look back at verse 12 near the end. Not only does it pierce, but it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is an infallible judge of our thoughts and our intentions. Just like the words spirit and soul functioned as synonyms, the words thoughts and intentions also function as synonyms here. And the heart here is, again, the inner man where the, the will, emotions, the thoughts reside. The point is that the sharp Word of God pierces into the inner man and it reveals the truth. It reveals the truth. The, the truth of your emotions and your thoughts and the inner man are laid bare. They're held up against the standard of the word of God. And God looks at that and the judgment is made. Righteous or unrighteous. Even to those parts of you that are hidden from everyone else who knows you best. The point of the author here is that if the piercing work of the word has happened in your heart as the gospel's been preached over and over again, then don't harden your heart because God already knows the truth. That piercing work reveals the reality of who you truly are before a holy God. There's no reason to pretend that you can hide any longer 
It's a perfect judge. Respond in humble faith and repentance. You know, true believers actually welcome the piercing work of the word. We long for it. Believers study the Bible, they study the Word of God regularly because they want God to use the Bible to expose the sin that remains. Reveal it, God. Show it to me and help me by your grace to turn from it. That's the heart of the believer. We come to church and say, hit me. You know, hit me hard. Give me the Word because I want to be more like Christ. Show me the truth. We want the Word to do that piercing work. On the other hand, Unbelievers spend their lives doing all they can to keep from having to deal with the truth of Scripture. Keep it away from me. I don't want to hear it. Don't talk to me about it. Why such an angry response? Because it pierces. And they don't like the piercing. The author wants us to understand that if we harden our hearts against the piercing work of the word, it will not end well for us. And so it is that he closes this section in verse 13 with a second motivation that we'll cover quickly together. Motivation number two is this. Not only is God's word alive, but God himself is omniscient. Omniscient, that is, he knows all things. Verse 13, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, this is a sobering verse. This is, this is to reach out and grab us by the spiritual throat and wake us up. And what you'll notice here is that the author moves seamlessly from talking about the Word of God to talking about God himself. He changes the, with the pronoun here. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. The idea is, again, God and his Word are, are connected. You can't rip them apart. And so what the Word reveals, God sees And so the word goes in, it does that piercing work, it lays you bare before him, and there he sees you as you really are. No creature, that is you and me, no one, not a single person is hidden from his sight, but all things are open. That word open is actually the word for naked. All things are completely exposed before him. Your soul, spiritually speaking, your inner man is as clear as the noon sun in the eyes of God. It's laid bare before him you can bamboozle your neighbors and your church family and even your blood relatives but you cannot hide the realities of your heart from a holy god every thought you entertain every word you speak every deed you perform is seen by god clearly david says in psalm 139 that that even darkness is, is like light to God. Verse 12, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Now David uses that as a comfort because he knows God's always with him in the day or in the night, but it, it works the other way too. That is, God's eyesight's not uh, affected by the darkness. He sees you just as clearly in the dark as he does in the day. He sees it all. And it's clear that the author intends for this to be a warning because of the way he finishes the phrase. He says, All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now that is a sobering phrase. What what it means literally is to him or to whom we must give account. To whom we must give account. Literally the word it says, to whom we must give the word. That is, to whom we must give an account for all things. The point is, a day of judgment is coming. This is a judgment passage. A day of judgment, a day of reckoning is coming in which books will be opened. And Revelation says all whose, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into hell. They'll stand there at the great white throne judgment and there will be no excuse. There will be nowhere to hide. There will be no one that say, yeah, but let me tell you, let me just explain. There'll be no explaining because there's no getting around the facts. It's laid bare and everyone will know it's laid bare. No need for an attorney, no need for, for cross-examination. The judge is the omnipotent, all-knowing God. And you stand there before him, naked and exposed, everything known and open to him. That sobering warning is to wake us up and to be a positive motivation to remember the promise we studied last week. Today. Today is a day 
of salvation. Yes, there's a future day of judgment coming, and it's real. But today is the day of salvation for all who would turn to him in repentance and faith. And so I'll say it again. If you this morning feel the piercing work of the word, revealing sin in your heart, opening up to you the true reality of who you are and who Christ is, don't harden your heart. Turn to him in repentance and faith. That really is the first and most obvious application to this text. Application number one is strive to enter God's rest. Strive to enter God's rest. If you're an unbeliever, we've talked about what that means for you in repentance and faith. But if you're a believer in Christ, remember that these words reply to us as well as we said before. It's a call to take up the mantra of Paul to run the Christian life with perseverance and diligence. This means that we don't, we don't run the race of the Christian life like we've signed up for a local 5K in which we're going to go out with some friends and just happily jog along, excited for others who are more serious runners to, to blow by us towards the finish line. You, you go ahead. Not that kind of Christian living. No, you go and you run the race and run it as if you want to win. You give it all you got. You strive. You run till your feet hurt. You run till that, that stitch in your side is unbearable. And when you trip and fall, you get up and you keep running. And you keep running until you see him face to face. That's the call. Diligently strive to enter God's rest. Pursue obedience with greater diligence. Hold on to faith. Keep putting sin to death. Keep trusting God in the midst of that trial. Don't be deceived by the deception of sin. And don't let up until he brings you home. Not to earn anything, not to keep anything. Motivated by who he is and what he's done for you. Strive to enter that rest. Secondly, submit to God's living word. Submit to God's living word. This is what it looks like to strive. If you want to know, how do I strive? How do I run hard? Get into the word. Take the word of God seriously. If you want to know God more, you want to love God more, you want to serve God more faithfully, love the word. Open the word. Study the word. Memorize the word. Meditate on the word. And, and after you've left the word in your morning devotion, don't just leave it at home, but hide it in your heart and take it with you through memorization. And throughout the day, pull it out and meditate, mull it over and apply it to your life. That's what it looks like to strive, to run hard, is live your life in submission to the living word of God. Be like David in Psalm 139. When you come to the word, come to the word like this, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What is he saying? You come to the word and just open your arms and say, cut me with the piercing word. Open me up. Show me what's there, God, and rid me of it. Rid me of the sin that remains and help me, God, to walk in the everlasting way of truth. The sin of our hearts that remains is exposed by the precious word of God. May we see it as a gift. When you need encouragement, when you're weak, run to the word. When you need wisdom, run to the word. And as we center our lives in the word of God, we run with diligence. But thirdly and finally, there's another application here. It's not the primary application, but it is lying there under the surface, and we have to take it seriously, and it's this. Employ God's living word. Employ it, that is, use it. You know, what the author has done here is given us a gift of a theology of Scripture. He's reminded us of the crucial fact that the Word of God is what he uses. It's the tool God uses to accomplish his, his purposes. And that should affect the way that we teach. It should affect the way that we counsel. It should affect the way that we disciple and equip. It should affect the way that we evangelize. Listen, if God uses his word as the sharp two-edged sword that, that pierces to the inner being of every man and woman, then why in the world would we abandon that sword for anything else? Why would we set aside the scriptures for psychology and philosophy or any other man-made technique or program when we have the living, enduring word of God? And so if you're a teacher in this church at any level, teach the word. What children need, 
What youth need, what men need, and what women need is the Word of God. Because the Word of God alone is the piercing sword of the Spirit. It means that God uses it to save and God uses it to sanctify. You know, as a pastor, I'm painfully aware that my personal stories and my jokes and my my well-crafted illustrations have no power in and of themselves to affect anything in your life or mine. They are powerless. The only thing that I can do as a pastor with confidence that will affect your heart is stand here and tell you this. And then the Spirit will take the Word and He will do the work. And the same thing is absolutely true for you. Just use the Word, Christian. Moms, you're home with your kids, you're shepherding your kids. How do you shepherd their hearts? Take them to the Word. Dads, you're at work. How do you share with that hard-hearted co-worker seems to care nothing about God or the Bible, who thinks that it's all a myth and all a joke? Share the word. You say, well, they're an atheist. They don't believe in God. Or they, they, they say they don't believe the Bible is God's word. Share the word. The word is in the hand of God. He uses the word to pierce the heart. Every heart is laid bare by the word. So in your evangelism, use the word. Oh, they may cover up their conviction with a smirky grin, a joke, or an angry frown, but make no mistake about it, the word pierces. Use the word. Use it for your heart. Use it for every heart that God gives you to shepherd in any way, and use it in the the lives of the lost, because this and this alone is the sword of the Spirit to pierce to the inner man. What a gift. What a gift. That should change the way you think about this book when you wake up with your cup of coffee to read it. You're coming to the living, active Word of God. May we treasure it as the gift that it is as God continues to use it in each of our lives. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are blessed this morning to have the gift of your perfect Son who gave His life, the living Word, who laid down His life for us and spoke the truth to us, and we are also blessed because you've left with us the written word which you have inspired, which you continue to faithfully use in our lives. God, help us not to neglect it. Help us, God, to run the race of the Christian life with diligence as we're caught here in the middle, longing for eternity, but still desiring to be faithful in this life. God, help us to do it with diligence in a way that pleases you and brings you the utmost glory. God, apply these things to our hearts now as we sing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.